Welcome back to The Purpose Effect, the podcast about purpose-driven businesses and what we can learn about solving some of the world's biggest problems from the women who are solving them. I'm Elena Kersey, and I'm on a mission to learn how we can build better, better work, stronger communities, a healthier planet. If you believe there's a better world out there waiting for us, then this podcast is for you. So I thought that bakeries would be super open to giving us bread that they're normally throwing away because it's easier, right? Now it's our problem. If we collect it, we have to deal with the disposal. But they were so difficult to convince because it was just hard for them to believe that a bunch of little kids wanted to start brewing beer and they would genuinely collect this bread and turn it into a product. So that took a very long time. I remember people laughing at me saying, why do you think we're going to believe that you're going to be able to turn bread into beer? And so eventually, luckily, there was this one bakery. They said to me that you've been here so many times, it's getting borderline annoying. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you two kgs of bread. If you're able to brew beer with this, come back and we can talk. But if you can't, do yourself a favor, just don't come back. A lot of the conversation around waste and its environmental impact is about plastic or clothing or non-compostable waste. But I was shocked to learn that one third of the food we produce globally is wasted. Most of this goes straight from supermarkets, restaurants or refrigerators straight into landfill. But some of it doesn't even make it onto market shelves. It never leaves the farm, or it's spoiled somewhere in the supply chain. Globally, food waste makes up about 8% of all greenhouse gas emissions. For context, the global airline industry makes up around 2.5%. But what makes this worse is that food insecurity is a growing problem. The world produces more than enough calories to feed its population, but we need to do a much better job of producing and distributing food. Anushka Purohit and her co-founders at Breer have saved 15,000 kilograms of wasted bread from landfill by turning it into beer. And now that she's done that, she's looking at other ways to transform wasted food, from coffee to fruit, into new products. To kick off our conversation, we talk about the moment when the seed of what would one day become Breer was first planted. For me personally, it dates back to my 10th birthday. I've grown up in Hong Kong. My family moved to Hong Kong a few years before I was born, but I moved here when I was two months. And having grown up in Hong Kong, you tend to realize that we live in a city with immense privilege. And I think that moment kind of twisted for me when I was in a coffee shop on my 10th birthday. And as I was waiting for my Frappuccino, I watched as the barista cleared the shelves of cakes and breads and sandwiches and threw it straight into a black rubbish bag. And so I asked my dad, I said, these are completely good to eat. Why are they being thrown away? And he said to me that, you know, in Hong Kong, the issue is Western solutions, like in different parts of the world, you have food that doesn't get sold today and it gets resold at a discount the next day. It wouldn't work here because everyone has that extra disposable income to be able to pay for the freshest food. So they have no option but to throw it away. And that I think somewhere struck a chord with me just, just to see the disparity in that we have so many people in the world who don't have enough money to you know, really have bread and butter on their plates every day. And then we have people on the other side of the world where they have so much money that they're not thinking about the food that could make a hell of a difference in the lives of someone else. 
And so I think that that thought just kind of stayed with me for a while, but I I wouldn't say I did anything about it until I entered university. And I met three of my friends who had moved to Hong Kong from India for their further education. And as I was kind of introducing them to the city that I call home, I told them that there's this one problem, though, that Hong Kong has, and I'm not sure how we can solve it, and that's food wastage. And so when we were given the opportunity to join a social innovation competition, and obviously we had to pick a social problem to solve, I was like, hey, this works out perfectly. If we can find a way to solve this, it would make me the happiest person, if not anyone else. So that's kind of where it came about. And then how Breer specifically was actually by chance. So we decided we're doing this competition, decided we want to try to solve food wastage, had no idea how we're going to do that. And it just so happened that we ended our university exam. So we were all celebrating with a few drinks at Lan Kwai Fong, which is when we realized that bread and beer are made of the same ingredients. They both have barley. And so it was just a chance thought that, oh, maybe, you know, we can say that this bread can be used to brew beer. And at that time, there was no steak that, you know, was presented to us. It was just, you say the idea and if it can happen, it can happen. Or if it can, it can't. And so we just pitched it and ended up winning some uh, money that we could use to try it out. Okay. I think the decision, probably the toughest decision, frankly, was after that, where once you win, if you win, you get, we got 10,000 Hong Kong dollars. And the question was, do we split this four ways for 2,500 per person? Or do we put that money towards actually seeing if the bread does turn into beer and then seeing what happens? So thankfully, we picked the latter and here we are. (laughs) Yeah. So recently, I've been diving into this issue of food waste because I knew it was a problem, but I didn't realize how big of a problem. It's not just in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. One third of food produced globally, one third of all of the food produced in the world is wasted in some way whether it goes into landfill, it's never sold, or or there's just a supply chain issue, which means it can't be used. That's staggering. Mm -hmm. So it's great that groups like you guys are solving for it. So what happened then? You had this 10,000 Hong Kong dollar grant. What were the next steps in trying to test whether or not this product would work? Actually, I was in the United States at the time on an exchange semester. So I came back. I remember the day after I landed, I went straight to a brewery in Hong Kong. And I said to them, hi, you know, we're interested in doing this bread to beer. Will you be able to help us? And I actually thought it would be more difficult to convince breweries to work with us. Because if you think about it, we're kind of creating a competing product to them. So what's their incentive in, you know, actually having us there and helping us uh, brew this beer? So I thought I would have to do a lot of convincing there. But I went and they were so excited and they were like, yeah, we can totally do this. We would love to try it for you. Of course, we pay to do that. So that's kind of what it made sense to me that it is a win-win situation for them too. But the breweries were super excited. The tough part was the bakeries to convince because it was just hard for them to believe that a bunch of little kids wanted to start brewing beer and they would genuinely collect this bread that we're being given for free and turn it into a product. So that took a very long time. I remember people laughing at me saying, why do you think we're going to believe that you're going to be able to turn bread into beer? And so eventually, luckily, there was this one bakery. They said to me that you've been here so many times, it's getting borderline annoying. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you two kgs of bread. If you're able to brew beer with this, come back and we can talk. But if you can't, do yourself a favor, just don't come back. And so I was like, okay, done, done, done. At least we get two kg. And that was the two kilograms of sourdough bread that we used to brew our very first beer. And luckily enough, it did turn into beer, but I will say it was very, very salty. But for me, that was the moment where I was able to see that, okay, this idea does actually have potential for execution. And from there, it was just, you know, we knew that we absolutely had to give it a shot and see how things could pan out. 
So that was the proof of concept. Basically, yeah. And what have you learned <laughs> since? If sourdough is not necessarily the right bread, like what have you learned about how to make beer out of bread? Like what works, what doesn't work? Oh, it's very interesting. So actually sourdough bread does turn into good beer. The issue was we just didn't have that kind of exposure, which is why right after that experience, we decided, okay, we can't just try and, you know, make mistakes until hopefully something works. Let's actually perfect the craft of brewing. So the four of us took online brewing lessons from the UK. So this was streamed on Zoom. We learned how to brew beer online, figured out what the different machinery is, what the different raw materials used are. And then kind of understood, okay, conceptually, how does this work? So we learned then that actually the flavoring agent of beer is hops. And hops determine how bitter or how not bitter beer is. And so that was something we learned about. And we kind of understood what the Hong Kong general demographic tastes like. And so we were trying to create a product that would then cater to the masses. And in that process, we did a lot of focus groups. We did a lot of booths where we had people come and try our beers for free and give us just their honest, raw, unsolicited feedback about whether they liked it, whether they didn't like it, what they would have wanted to see. And then we really took all of that feedback to heart and try to implement it as best as we could. So now I know a lot about Yes, any sort of bread can turn into beer. It's really just about perfecting the ratios and understanding what kind of end flavor you want. I mean, I can definitely see from a consumer perspective, this is a really interesting product. It's got a great story behind it. You've told me a little bit about the pushback that you got from the bakeries. When you then went to try and distribute your product in bars and restaurants, what was the response to it like at that stage? That is also a very tough part about Breer. So the difficulty is we are a student team. There are four of us. And at any given point to have all four of us in Hong Kong is also a challenge. So right now we only have two of us in Hong Kong. And so to actually be able to go to all these stores, convince them and turn those conversations into deeds is very difficult. But the first time we spoke to people, everyone was very interested because they'd never heard of a concept like this. No one in Hong Kong ever brewed this kind of bread beer before. So everyone was just very interested to know what it was like. But rightly said, it was a gamble for that first store to purchase our beer and stock it was a risk because they didn't know if people would come and buy it, if they didn't know if it would resonate with the Hong Kong audience. And I think that's where a lot of our exposure in giving beer to, say, for example, students at HKUST to try or at um, you know different pop-up booths for the general mass public to try gave us that strength and confidence because we were able to convince the stores by saying, look, we've done our research. We've spoken to individuals all around Hong Kong, and these are the metrics we got from it. Mm -hmm. So let the data talk. It's not us talking. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, we're happy to take the stock back. So that's how much confidence we had in our product. And luckily enough for us, when that first store actually did you know, purchase our beers and it did sell out, it made us very happy and gave us perfect. This is that one stepping stone we needed for every other bar and restaurant, hopefully to see and learn from. Was it a big gamble from a production perspective? Because how much beer did you need to make in order to have, first of all, enough to test, but then also enough to distribute, but then not so much that if you couldn't distribute it, I mean, there's a shelf life to beer, right? You weren't going to be flushing all of that money down the toilet. Yeah, for sure. Actually, at that point, I don't think we thought about it like this. Today, yes, definitely. This is something I think about a lot more. But at that time, the thing with brewing beer is 
you can either do a 20 liter batch, which is what we call a test batch, where maybe the quality of beer isn't as optimal as you would like, but it gives you a good ballpark of what the beer will taste like. And after 20 liters, you jump straight to 500 liters. There's no in between, which means when we first started and did a lot of those testing batches, it was a 20 liter beer that we were testing. And we kind of banked on the feedback of the 20 liter beer to then do our very first 500 liter beer, which of course, like you said, was daunting. But our goal was let's just try and see what we can do. And at the time we were actually producing in bottles. And so we tried to push it in that kind of mindset. And we did a lot of these boots ourselves. And our worst case scenario was if it doesn't work out, we'll always be happy to, you know, say sponsor a few events or give it to individuals who might want to give it a shot, but not want to put money on stake for it and then see what they think. So I think plan B was definitely to continue to do it. And we, if we do have what we call dead stock inventory, we'll figure out ways to get quote unquote rid of it. But luckily, that's not what happened. You know, we were able to do a lot of these boots. And the thing with boots is it's kind of a risk-averse model where the people who set up these boots, they just get suppliers in. And now the onus is on the suppliers to get people to buy their products. If they don't, then the suppliers take the products back. For the people who organize these boots, it's kind of a win-win situation because they're getting human traffic to these areas, but they don't have any autonomy on, oh, you absolutely have to sell this much product. And so did a lot of those boots when we first started. I think we were doing boots left, right, and center. And um, just tried to speak to people, you know, who would actually end up making the decision of whether or not they wanted to buy this beer. So thankfully, it wasn't really a problem. Yeah. And do you know how much bread you've saved from landfill so far? Yeah. So I would say we've saved almost close to 15,000 kilograms, wow. which is a crazy number. And I would not have imagined that ever. Wow. But, um, and we're, we're on track to do more, hopefully by the end of this year. So excited for that. That's amazing. And where, where can you buy Breer at the moment? Are you just in Hong Kong? Do you have any plans to expand around the region? Yeah, definitely just Hong Kong now, but never say never. We're keeping our fingers crossed and we would love expansion all over the world. Uh, but in Hong Kong, we're actually available in most places. So Breer itself is available in bars and restaurants and bottle shops around the city. So your classic Craftissimo, Hans Bar, these kind of areas all stock Breer. But Breer has actually also done a very cool collaboration with the Maxims Group in Hong Kong, which means our product is available in all of the Maxim Western and Chinese restaurants. So okay. it's called Bottle of Bread. B-O-B. So if yeah. you ever see that, that is also beer. So depending on where you are, at what time and what you're kind of craving, if you wanted it the can, if you want in the bottle, you have both those options available to you. <laughs> oh, that's cool. You said earlier that food waste was something that had bothered you since you were 10 years old. So did you always want to work towards solving a problem, whether that be an environmental problem or a social problem? Was that always one of your goals? It's interesting because, frankly speaking, I never, ever expected myself to be, quote unquote, an entrepreneur or even mildly involved in the business world because I was you know, on a very set career path for myself. I was studying engineering. My expectation was I would graduate, do a full-time job in some field that's similar to this, maybe banking, maybe technology, and then kind of go from there and make my impact in that form. But when I got this opportunity, I'm just somebody who likes to give everything a full squeeze before I let go of it, just so I am internally satisfied that I gave it my best shot. Mm-hmm. And so frankly speaking, even when we first started Breer, I never expected it would be a business. I really treated it like a side project that I really enjoyed. I think it was, you know, when we started realizing that there are people out there who are actually spending valuable money to purchase our products, that we need to switch that mindset from being just a project to becoming a business. And that's when I think change, you know, things change a lot, but definitely, you know, anything I do business-wise has to stem from 
passion of my my own and it does have a lot to do with food waste so i've grown up in hong kong and i've you know i come from india a country which is massive and the kind of disparity in terms of wealth that you will see in india i think it's hard to see anywhere else in the world you have one of the world's largest buildings the most expensive household and right next to it is like a three story building that's you know barely being able to be called a building it's torn up it's worn up and people there are just you know surviving one day at a time and so when you're in a place like this and you can see this disparity it makes you want to do things so that you can empower everybody in the population and i think that's where a lot of my vision stems from is something or anything that makes an impact i don't want to ever feel like you know i'm going to bed and i'm very happy about potentially making a lot of money but not making people smile or making people happy in the process because i'm a very firm believer of a business is only going to be successful if you have a market out there that will be by you no matter what and i think that stems a lot from you know solving social causes and issues so for me personally it definitely does come from that passion of trying to make a difference or a genuine difference mm yeah this feeling that you're articulating is something that i hear a lot on this podcast and i'm encouraged by the fact that more and more people are using their businesses to do good and also believe that it's the responsibility of business to do good that's certainly something i believe that this is not something to be left to individuals or to governments or the not-for-profit sector but i think what's even more encouraging is that your generation not only thinks this but is also willing to do something that i think would have been perceived as a risk when i was your <laughs> age i don't remember seeing many options at the time except sort of quote unquote traditional careers <laughs> so the fact that there is this new generation of young entrepreneurs who want to create impact and do good I think is really encouraging. Also, Breer is not your only business, right? What attracts you to building things and solving problems? So I love hackathons and I think this comes from there. Hackathons are very interesting in that they give you a problem statement, you get say 48 hours and you have to turn something out that is potentially usable. And I like these kind of high pressure situations because it pushes me to the edge to really think out of the box. And um I've always just been someone who wants to challenge the status quo and just break the glass ceiling is how I put it. Growing up, um I didn't have a lot of exposure to say for example women in the engineering field. So just getting into that was a battle in itself for me. Then once I made it there, I realized that there's so many younger people who might be interested in this, but because there's no one to look up to or they've never seen that someone else has been able to do it, they just won't even try. and that became something i was very passionate about so women in stem is an area that i'm constantly advocating for and i don't even think it needs to be women in stem it genuinely should just be people in stem but because of the sheer difference in the numbers and kind of the expectations too i really do want to advocate for at least that equity to happen so that is a cause that i care for a lot but to your point of you know kind of venturing into different areas then when i started brea i realized that okay yes we're able to solve food wastage in a minor aspect in that we're reducing the amount of bread that goes to landfills but unfortunately bread isn't the only thing that's wasted every single day we waste tons and tons of things like fruit peels flowers just all these other kinds of disposable waste that goes straight to the landfill without a thought And that's when I thought there must be a way that we can reduce this too. So I actually founded Somi Cosmetics with my mother, who has given me that exposure of how to make things from what you have. 
um, ever since I was a kid. So we used to do fun activities on Sundays where me and my sister would actually make our own face scrubs and we would make our own spa day items and then be able to use it and have a relaxation time. And so I thought, why don't we collect all of these fruit peels, all of these flowers and use it to make skincare items? So this could be a face scrub. This could be a foot scrub. There's really no end to it. And it's all about innovation, right? Because you're still extracting those still existing nutrients from these products and you're preventing them from going straight to the landfill. And so I found it that I'm very excited about it. We did a booth at Discovery Bay and people in Hong Kong absolutely loved it. We, ha- we went in with eight SKUs and we're actually down to only two because we sold out of the other six, which I thought was positive um, reception to it. And more importantly, it's not your average skincare brand. And in a time where, you know, sustainability and like sustainable has become buzzwords, I think it's so important to actually be true to your cause. Like you said, you know, use business as a force for good. So when we say we're hundred percent sustainable skincare, we mean it. Every part of our product is genuinely sustainable. It's not just organic or vegan or raw materials that are sourced, you know, rightfully, which are all good steps. But at the end of the day, if your production is still in plastic bottles and if your production is still not sustainable, how much of it are you actually offsetting? I wouldn't say, you know, these are all necessarily startups. I have a lot of projects that I feel very passionate about that try to make a difference. When COVID happened, um, like I said, I was in the U.S. on exchange. And it was crazy to me that we live in a world where we have technology, where if you, Alina, were in space today, I could still probably communicate with you. But when it came to the pandemic, doctors still had to don crazy PPE kits and go to patients and take care of them. So I thought there's just something so lacking here. And then me and a team of friends actually created an internal organ scanning device so that doctors could be in the room next door, but they could still take care of a patient right there. And so it was in an effort to A, make healthcare accessible to people in need, especially, for example, in rural villages in India, because I was just thinking when the whole world was battling the pandemic, all of us knew that there's a hospital we can go to, or there's some sort of a communication on what needs to be done, say on social media or on the internet that we have access to. But there are people in this world who might not have even heard of the word coronavirus, and they might be sick, extremely sick at that, but just not know what to do. Okay, so this is really interesting. I want to talk about this product for a bit. How does this work? What is the technology? Yeah, for sure. So it was actually called Corona AI just because it was born out of the pandemic. And it's super simple. So let's say you wake up this morning and you're feeling a little stitch, you know, in your left chest area and you're not sure what it is. But because of COVID at the time, you wouldn't want to go to the hospital or make that trip. Or better yet, you know, during COVID, I think everybody knew that your go-to was to get a CT scan because COVID affects the lungs the most. And it's important for doctors to be able to see how much of it has affected your lungs to diagnose whether or not your condition is serious. And so this would literally be a band that you would wear around your body. So let's say if you're analyzing your lungs for the doctors to see, you would wear it around your upper chest area here, but it basically uses this concept called electrical impedance tomography. So put simply, how it works is around those bands, there are electrodes and they send small pulses of current through your body. This current can go through almost everything in your body, but stops at organ walls, which means let's say if this was your lung, the current would stop right as soon as it touches the lung. And then it creates a tomographic image, essentially, of what your lung looks like. And we use heat map technology to, you know, compare that image against existing lung scans to then determine kind of where your lung is at. And all of this data 
sent straight to doctors who can access this remotely through the cloud. And they can sit somewhere else, maybe even in a completely different country and see, okay, there are six dimensions here. This looks off. There's something wrong here. Let me tell this patient to get to a hospital or let me tell this patient this is what they need to do. So it's almost like intermediary process. The the actual device does not diagnose anything. It's just about making the information retention scheme easier for the doctors to get to. Yeah. And I guess you're removing one more physical point of contact, which means Mm -hmm. that maybe diagnosis or treatment can start earlier. Yes. That's incredible. Are you still working on that project? Yeah. So we decided actually that we want to test this. Um, you know, like clinical testing with mm-hmm. people who would need it the most. So there are two villages near Indore in India, um, two rural villages. And we have tied up with a few doctors there who actually work with us to kind of test this entire arrangement. But yeah, my goal is also to continue working on that and bring it to, you know, at least the populations who don't have access to healthcare. So hopefully you'll hear more about it in the years to come. <laughs> oh, that that's exciting. But let's, you know, jump back to, to Breer. <laughs> Now, at this stage in Breer's sort of life cycle, um, have you gotten through the process of getting any other private funding in addition to the 10,000 grant that you started with? Do you have investors at this point? We actually don't. So we're completely bootstrapped and we haven't given away equity, but we do have um, funding sources and that is in the form of competition. So I think we realized that has so many amazing entrepreneurship, social innovation, innovation competitions in general, where stakes aren't that high in that if you present, you know, something you're passionate about and you have a viable prototype or at least some sort of traction, chances are they'll give you grant money that you can use to then further your cause. So we've raised over 4 million Hong Kong dollars now in pure grant money. And that's what's awesome. um, been keeping us going. <laughs> but that being said, opposed to investors or funding. I think for us, it's important that the people who invest in Breer don't just do it for, you know, giving us that monetary support that we will, of course, need, but more importantly, to bring that strategic investment into the company. So either they have skin in the game in the food and beverage industry, they're super passionate about sustainability, or they have an existing network of individuals who would really benefit um, from, say, connecting to someone like us, our team, Breer, and we could then further the cost together through collaborations. Mm, right. A partner to help you reach more markets and grow your distribution. Exactly. Right. So with all of these, I know you don't like to call them startups and you think of them more as projects, but with all of your projects, have they all worked? How do you know when to keep going and when to quit? Yeah, it's tough because I'm just someone who wants to keep trying and trying and trying until you get there. But I think I also am very receptive of feedback. Thankfully, nothing that I've started so far has failed immensely. And I think the reason for that is before we start anything, before we call it a project that's worth putting our time and investment in, we really do try to see if there are people out there who would benefit from it. But I think the one project that I started that I don't work on anymore is Stake. So Stake was a project also kind of born out of the pandemic with the goal of making activities in Hong Kong accessible to everyone. So if you remember during the pandemic, everyone was talking about how they wanted to go travel and they wanted to go back to their normal lives and experience activities that, you know, they couldn't find in Hong Kong. But truth be told, we have so many activities in Hong Kong that people are just not aware of. So you mm-hmm. could go scuba diving in Hong Kong. And so we realized this gap in that there were a lot of suppliers who've been in Hong Kong for years and years who relied on this kind of, you know, traffic to continue their business who weren't getting that anymore. And they were at the verge of shutting down. 
And so we thought, okay, why not connect both these markets together where we can give people in Hong Kong knowledge that these activities exist, give those suppliers sources of business, and then combine the two together. And we were actually, and we are actually the first kind of this marketplace platform in Hong Kong that charge commission to customers, not suppliers. So if you look at any other platform where they kind of bridge these activities, they will always be charging the suppliers, which sucks because this is their bread and butter and you're taking away from them, especially in hard times of business. So we switched that model around. And it did really well. We had a lot of people getting very interested. So many people were doing kayaking every single week, booking through Stake. So it was great. But I think the moment we, I wouldn't say gave it up, but actually transferred ownership was when someone came in and said, hey, we're interested in what you built. And I was actually involved in a technical capacity at Stake. So I was the CTO and I was in charge of creating the website and the mobile application. So we had someone come in and say, look, I like what you guys are doing. And I have access to this market because I'm working with one of the larger marketplaces in Hong Hong Kong. So can I buy what you guys have done off of you? And there it was a question for us to decide, okay, do we want to continue to you know, work hard and put this cause as one something that we do? Or do we think it's better off us giving this to somebody else who might be able to execute it better? So we decided as a team that it might make sense for us to move on per se. So I think it's win-win, but it's important to be able to make that decision, especially right place, right time, that mentality, and not think that, oh, I personally believe that we could do this better. It's always worth giving it a shot. And if you have passionate people come by and you know you can see that their vision aligns with yours, I think it's worth the gamble. What have you learned from all of these experiences? If you were to launch Breer again, or maybe Stake again, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would do differently? I don't think so, honestly, because I think everything that we did then, whether right or wrong now, in my perspective today, happened for the best. It taught us a lot. It gave us a lot of exposure. It gave us a lot of perspective. There are certain things that, you know, I wish we would have fleshed out earlier. I'm sure if you were to ask Anushka from four or five years ago and said, would you be able to survive on the money that either Breer or Stake makes? I would be like, I don't know, but I'm not thinking about it because it's not something I'm doing for the money. It was genuinely just something I was so passionate about. And it was teaching me so much more than I think any academic textbook or any coding lesson could teach me. And I I love that thirst for learning. So I wouldn't change anything. (laughs) I just want to now move into some quick fire questions. Um, First of all, what makes you feel on purpose? Impact. Impact. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I love it. I can't put into words the feeling that you get when you see that someone else out there in this world is benefiting from something that you put your time and effort into and is genuinely thankful. So I'll give you a very quick example. I know it's rapid fire, but with Breer, sometimes bread actually doesn't end up going into a brew because we aren't brewing damaged beer. So the question was, what do we do with that bread then? And we absolutely didn't want to throw it away. So we worked with a Chinese restaurant that I've been going to as a kid my whole life, and we decided to sponsor food boxes and donate the bread to elderly. And I wish I could put into words the kind of fuzzy, warm feeling you get when, you know, you have elderly members lining up every Saturday, taking these food boxes and bread from you. And they're just so happy, like their eyes shine and they tell you, you know, I was looking forward to this. It's so good what you guys are doing. And that's the kind of impact. And that's the kind of, you know, that's the end goal for me is if you can make people feel wanted, feel welcome, feel excited about something, then you're doing something totally right. Yeah, it's so powerful when your work is impacting other people positively. Do you have a mantra? Yes, M-A-D. 
it stands for being mad, but also making a difference. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Making a difference in a slightly mad kind of a way. Exactly. <laughs> and do you have a superpower? I think my superpower is my ability to multitask. I, yeah, I can imagine that <laughs> because we've talked about four different projects that you've been working on. And all of these projects you were working on at a time when you were also a full-time student. That's right. <laughs> um, the other thing that I would say is your superpower is you have a huge amount of optimism. You're just oh, thank like you. <laughs> radiate optimism, which I think is amazing. So what's next for Breer? Yeah, sure. So we're actually working on a coffee beer right now. So okay. we're doing this with mountains and you know how we have BOB, we might have something like a BOC bottle of coffee very, very soon. So it's also going to be bread beer, but it's also using coffee grounds from cafes around Hong Kong. So okay. it's kind of double sustainability impact. So I'm very excited for that to launch. <laughs> I mean, it sounds exciting. I get the story behind it. I love the idea of using coffee grounds it doesn't sound delicious. So tell me how this works. <laughs> I personally really like it. So I'm someone yeah. who enjoys coffee for the taste, but I'm not someone who has coffee every single day. And when I had it, it was like carbonated coffee. It was like the perfect flavor, but it's not something you absolutely have to drink in the morning or, you know, you can't sleep at night. It's something you can have with a meal. It's super light. And I think a lot of people in Hong Kong will really like it. This is alcoholic, right? We're talking about alcoholic, yep, carbonated coffee. Basically, yep. okay. <laughs> this is something that I'm going to have to try. I was going to ask you what's next for you and Breer. So the goal is to continue, you know, continuing our impact. So I mentioned to you earlier that we've saved 15,000 kilograms of bread so far, and the goal is to just make that number larger as we can because. It's just a problem that is unfortunately growing at such a fast rate that any sort of work we do has really need to be accelerated in order for it to match um, the pace at which the problem is growing. So I think it's to continue brewing a lot of beer, hopefully many different kinds of flavors. We just launched our pineapple bun beer, which is being very well received by Hong Kong. Oh, nice. So creating more of those funky flavors, giving people what they want and continuing the impact. Yeah. Uh, that's exciting. And I love to see how the impact is spreading out into other spaces. So you've made a solve for unused bread. Now you're thinking, okay, what are we going to do with coffee? What are we going to do with other products? What are we going to do with pizza dough? What are we going to do with flowers and fruit and things that can be used for skincare products? So I love the way that this concept is spiraled out into solves for the food waste problem in so many ways. But look, thank you so much for your time, Anushka. I've really enjoyed this chat. It's so uplifting to see someone so young, so much optimism and working so hard on so many projects that are going to create so much impact. So thank you. It makes me very happy. No, thank you. Thank you for your time. And I'm very excited to see how this conversation inspires other people to hopefully make a difference in their own right and way. This conversation made me feel so hopeful for the future of entrepreneurship if it's women like Anushka building it. My takeaway from this episode is that your project, as Anushka likes to call them, doesn't need to be grand to begin with. It can start with a very simple question. How can we better use waste bread? 
but where this goes, how it's replicated, and how this idea can then spin off into other projects can create a significant impact. So my question to you is, what's the first step you could take? What's the first problem you could solve? Have a think about that. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.